Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk about all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, flying solo today, doing a quick Memorial Day podcast or Canadian Thanksgiving, if that's where you're located. My guest today is Philip Shoemaker, formerly the Apple App Store Director and now Executive Director at Identity.com. Philip, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be here. Thanks, Ben. So yeah, the first thing we do when we have a new guest on the show is just kind of situate people. How did you first touch a line of code or get involved with working in technology companies? And you know, after you bring us through a little bit of those early stages, what was it that brought you to, to Apple and, and the App Store? Yeah, that's great. Uh, first time I touched a line of code. Wow, that was a long time ago. But you know, I was fortunate enough to be born in, the, in Silicon Valley, right? Cupertino, mm. California is where I, I was was raised. And I was fortunate enough, my very first uh, computer I bought was, uh, I bought an Apple II, but my father yeah. was uh, an employee at IBM and got very unhappy mm. with that and made me return <laughs> it. So very first thing I did was started playing around with MS-DOS, programming on, on the PC using uh, Peter Norton's Guide to uh, uh, Programming. And it right. was, it just changed my life. To me, it was all about video games, right? I wanted to write right. a better video game than what was out there. So that's yeah. really what I started jumping into and learning assembly at 16 was tough, but at the same time really helped set my, uh, my mind on what I wanted to do moving forward. That's very cool. The family loyalty uh, brought you back to Windows. <laughs> We've spoken with a lot of people on this podcast. It's always great. They ran out of video games or they wanted to make a better one. Some people had Neopets that they wanted to, you know, give to their boyfriend or girlfriend. And one guy was uh, running a, a forum for Tony Hawk Pro Skater 6 or whatever, you know, and um, that need to create and the love of the video games and the want to be part of a community then eventually led them to code. I guess you eventually set your father's dictates aside because you did end up at Apple. Tell us a little bit about how that happened and how you made your way to the App Store world. Yeah, you know, I was I was working on I I always loved the Mac, right? When the Mac first came out, I was I was hooked, right? The user interface, all of that about it was something I'd always wanted to work on. And I applied for a few jobs when I was in my early 20s at Apple that did not uh they didn't hire me. But mm -hmm. I went through seven startups, right? I was at Palm Computing working on a handheld computing before oh, I had a company. Know all about it. Right? Very cool yeah. thing. Yeah. Great stuff. I mean, the Palm Pilot to me, you know, I had a Newton before that. Right. And for me, my test was always, can I get to somebody's address in my handheld device before a friend could get it in their paper planner? Right? <laughs> and the Newton, I couldn't. It took right. me a minute, right, to get to something. Somebody could be in their planner in, in 10 seconds. The Palm Pilot changed that for me, right? You just press contacts, yep. one letter, and I was I was at that uh, at that person's record. So for me, that changed everything. And cool. for me, it was all about, you know, something as a companion, not replacing my PC, uh, but but as a companion to it. To me, that was the holy grail at the time. So I did seven startups, worked at those. And then ultimately, I was at a, a startup that was founded by uh, the same people that founded Palm, Jeff and Donna. And it was an mm -hmm. artificial intelligence company called Numenta. And that's when the iPhone came out. And here I am hiding an iPhone because I'm with the people that created the Palm Trio and nobody, right. nobody was supposed to have an iPhone in this, in this company. We were all, all of us engineers were hiding them. And it was then that I realized that when they announced the app store, I said, I need to be part of that because yeah. for me, it was 2008, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in a, we were in a recession. Engineers were getting hurt. I mean, a lot mm. of my friends had gotten laid off of jobs and I saw right. this as a way to help level the playing field. Let's give them the ability to make money without working for the man, 
right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I looked at it. And so I started, I quit. I started writing apps for the iPhone and they were terrible apps, right? I mean, we were just trying <laughs> to see if something would stick. And right. the rejection letters I got from Apple were fearsome. I mean, they were angry rejection letters from the legal team. You thought you were going to get sued early on. And so I started writing letters back saying, here's what the problem is with your review process. Here's why, you know, why does it take three weeks to get into the store? It should be right. fast. And it was that point that Eddie Q at iTunes reached out to me and said, we need to talk. And that started a long interview process. And I met with everyone, met with Steve and all of his direct reports and ultimately made the decision to hire me. And I, uh, I jumped at the chance, but uh, I didn't know how much that, how that was going to change the world as much as I, you know, as, as I saw. I saw it as something to help developers. And it, right. it did a lot more than that. Yeah, no, it's created a humongous ecosystem and entire companies that are built around it, not just individual developers. What was your initial role when you started there? Um, like what, what part of the app store were you focused on and what did you grow into? Yeah, I, I was brought in to be the first director to run run the app store, the first full-time new hire to just focus on the app store. And, and the Got first it. thing to focus on was the review times, right? People were submitting an app and three weeks later, they, it might get approved, but more more than likely it got rejected, right? So imagine right. you do all this hard work, you submit an app, and then you sit in silence for three weeks. It's not like they're reviewing it for three weeks. They had such right. a backlog that they would review it in five minutes and reject it because it was something that was against the rules. But that's the problem is that there were no rules defined in the early mm. days. Mm-hmm. So the, my very first day there, I uh, I said, okay, here's what we need to do. Let's let's write some rules. Let's let's look into the the ways that people can fool us. Right? There's there's mm-hmm. different ways to fool app review. And let me reach out to some of the prolific developers submitting apps to the store. So I reached out to a bunch of developers and just had them come in. I bought them lunch at the cafeteria and just started talking to them. And man, were they unhappy! I mean, this was in the first two months, three months of the app store. And developers were really unhappy because there were no defined rules. They didn't know what they were right. allowed to do. I mean, typically, somebody would look at the store and say, oh, there's no app that does X. And so they would do it thinking that they were the first. But little did they know, hundreds of, of apps like that were submitted. <laughs> we just rejected right. them all because they were against right. the rules, the, the rules that nobody knew. Right. Some roadmap of this. these are the reasons apps like this might get rejected, or these are the things you really need to check for before you send it in. I guess those were security, legal concerns. You mentioned, you know, maybe things you were looking for that were a little insidious. What were the key rules that you were able to lay out that made that review path easier and in that sense, developers more productive through that ecosystem? Yeah. You know, now you look at it, there's about 150 plus review guidelines, right? There's significant Mm. numbers, but I like to always say it's always distilled down into three main buckets, right? The first Mm -hmm. bucket is you got to protect Apple's brand, right? That's number one. If you have an app on there that uh, that you hurt babies or children <laughs> or fuzzy little creatures, that'll right. hurt Apple's brand, right? That'll right. reduce Apple's stock price. And that's something that Apple doesn't want. So the first thing is you can't mess with their brand. Mm-hmm. Two, you can't hurt the user, right? So things like we had apps, games, that in the middle of playing a game, it would say, hey, what's your, you, you need to enter your social security number to continue. And right. people would do that for some reason to play a game, but there was no real reason why these things had to happen. And I so, mean, you're right at breaking that high score in Candy Crush. You're going to put in whatever they ask you, not Candy Crush, right. but you know what I mean. You know, they've got you over so a barrel. Yeah. <laughs> and the third thing was just getting Apple's cut, 
right? Apple needed their 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 cut of the money. Those are the kind of the three main buckets that we've always been looking right. for in, in the App Store team, and they're they're still doing it. So I guess one last question before we move on to your new role. You know, when you look at the ecosystem for app stores today, you know, there are two sort of dominant players in the mobile world, but there are very large and interesting app stores that exist, for example, um, in the PC gaming world, um, or you might even say on the smart television world. So what do you, when you look at it, that ecosystem, having worked inside of it and built one of the, you know, most, you know, largest and most important ones to date, what do you, what do you find interesting? You know, what, when you look at it, app store ecosystems today, what either excites you or frustrates you or, you know, you get a sense, maybe this is, you know, where we should be headed. Yeah. The, you know, one of the things about the Apple's app store is they hired a ton of people, right? We hired a lot of people to, to physically look at each and every app, right? A set mm-hmm. of eyes is on every app. There's no automated review. Right. And I think that's one of the things that Google does really well is that they've, they've modified their, their automated review to the point mm-hmm. that it's pretty spectacular. Right. So mm. being able to do that is critical, right? These are for, for companies that are reviewing apps without ever seeing a line of code, right? If we, if we saw the code, at least we would know what they were trying to do. But then again, that would make review times a heck of a lot longer because you're reviewing right. code, right? So that, yeah. that's a problem. So one of the things is automated review has, uh, has gotten so much better machine vision, right? Back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, you wanted to do a little machine vision. You're like, we're just looking for pornography in an app. And the mm-hmm. way most of those work is percentage of skin tone in an image. <laughs> and, and so that's great. But if you do a headshot, that's almost all skin tone, right? Right, so a lot headshots, of false negatives, yeah. All false negatives, right? So, so machine vision, automated review are really interesting. But I am fascinated by the TVs, right? All the TV companies and cable companies now, we see Comcast, we see Spectrum, all coming out with types of app stores for their televisions, which I'm fascinated about because they want to, they want to do the right thing. They want to put these things out there, but their rules are even more onerous than they were at the app store. And so I, I wonder about their <laughs> right. success. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an interesting point. They have smart TVs. They want to have an app store, but being an old line telco, they might uh, still have quite a bit of bureaucracy that they need to wade through before they're an agile uh, tech competitor. So I know where you're coming that, from that's on that right. side. Well, have you, have you seen also that some of the, uh, some of the blockchain companies are doing dApp stores, right? Saga, right. Saga is a phone coming up by Solana and they're going to require a dApp store. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really excited to see what they're going to do because, you know, the, the barrier of entry, the required barrier of entry, I would think for a DeFi, somebody who's going to be touching your money, that's got to be a high bar, right? You right. want to jump through a lot of hoops to be able to get these companies in because they have the ability to take your money. Yeah, you make a good point. You know, I think one thing we did see, and you know, uh, we we kind of just went through a, a crypto cycle, a boom and bust, was these massive exchanges that would get built up, like a Uniswap or an FTX, and things that would come online. They weren't an app necessarily, but they were a new protocol or a new token, and people would widely adopt them, not really knowing very much about them. You know, um, some of them promised amazing returns, and some of them turned out to be not so secure. So. Um, would be interesting to see a company like Solana, which has a lot of credibility in the industry, try to do an app store where maybe there is some kind of review process, but uh, they still get the best of decentralization. So I guess, yeah, tell us a little bit about um, your jump uh, to this new world of Web3 um, and identity in particular. Yeah, you know, when I was at Apple, uh, if you were a company coming in as a company, you went through the whole, you had to get a, a done in Bradstreet number, et cetera. So there was some vetting. We knew you were a real company. When it comes mm. to individuals, you need an email address and a credit card, right? That's pretty, and, and a name. 
And mm. a credit card can be a prepaid card. So, you know, you can make up whatever name you want to for your right. uh, for, for yourself. And an email address is easy to get. Mm-hmm. So we were uh, we were constantly playing playing a game of whack-a-mole with these developers because <laughs> they would do something bad. We would right. terminate their membership and they'd reappear under a different name in a matter of minutes and submitting a similar app that might go to a different team member who approved it, right? So mm. these guys were getting on the store and it was a constant game of whack-a-mole. So that was my first foray into the problems with uh, internet anonymity, right? I, I've yeah. always loved an- the anonymous nature of the internet. I can go up, go to a forum, speak my mind, and I might not necessarily, you know, reflect back on my own reputation because I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm trying some things out, et cetera. But with that, it just, with, with the app store, it was a, a big problem. So when I left, I wanted to focus on identity for that reason, but there were other reasons, right? There's privacy mm. concerns. I was, the, the way that my name got out as the head of the app store was uh, through a David Copperfield. I helped out the magician with an app and he tweeted <laughs> my name saying, thanks to the head of the app store. And he, he puts my name. And then, you know, I started getting stalked, death right. threats. Oh my gosh. David Copperfield, make me disappear now, please. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's hilarious. <laughs> he definitely made me appear. And yeah. so it was those kind of things, you know, people stalking, I've been sim swapped. It's just, I want, I, 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 in 2016, I was playing around on the dark web and I found my identity I could purchase off Silk Road at the time. And that just fascinated me. It's like, okay, where are they getting this information? Oh, it's these honeypots of PII. So mm-hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to end this, right? So I started researching. I, I was, I've been into crypto for a while. My friend, uh, Bill sent me the white paper in 2010. I was mm-hmm. fascinated by it. And then I invested in like 21E6, which was, uh, uh, became earn.com that Coinbase bought with Balaji. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I invested in BitGo as well. So these were companies I, I really liked this space, but 2016 is the year I really dove in mm. head first and started looking into identity solutions. In 2017, I ran into Civic. And uh, around 2018, Vinny and I met up for, uh, for coffee. Uh, he's the CEO of Civic at the time. And we decided, let's join forces. Let's split out our protocol and make it a nonprofit. And so right. I jumped at that chance. That's what we did. And, and we're plugging away on these protocols right now. Very cool. Everyone hates passwords. So that's why Auth0 by Okta wants to build a world without them. Catch our live keynote at Octane Online for free, where they discuss how developers can get rid of passwords forever. It's happening November 9th. So register for your free ticket at auth0.com slash octane, O-K-T-A-N-E. Yeah, I noticed uh, you were quoted recently in an article. I myself, yeah, also uh, started reporting and thinking about Bitcoin 2010. And, you know, for a long time and still to this day, I think for people who are perhaps, you know, less deeply involved in the space, one of the promises that it holds out that people are attracted to is anonymity, you know, a decentralized network of trust where, you know, transactions can occur. And I think a lot of people still associate Bitcoin with things like Silk Road. But to your point, in in some ways, the transactions are actually more traceable, you know, if you can follow where, you know, one wallet to another. And in the case of companies that, you know, aren't really following good Web3 practices, when it comes to then the legal system, all of that stuff is suddenly out in the open and a lot of people's identities and financial transactions might be exposed. So how would a service like yours help either 
Web2 companies who are looking for solutions or Web3 companies who are trying to build in that natively in that, you know, sort of um, that style, uh, protect folks' identity and provide them with anonymity online. That that's not just anonymity, but I guess anonymity that is also functional, you know, lets you log in here or hold an account there or transfer money here. Beautiful question. I, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough problem to solve, right? That, as you said, the transparent nature of blockchains phenomenal. That's what brought a lot of us there. So you could follow mm-hmm. the money if you need to, right? right? But at the same time, if you're going to publicly expose someone's name and their wallet, well, then you pretty <laughs> much know everybody that they've ever sent money to, right? And right. I had a friend back in the day that would follow your wallet. And if he saw that you were accessing Silk Road or sending money to some of these nefarious things, he would have no business with you, right? He wouldn't invest in you. He wouldn't do right. anything like that. So it's it's always been out there. But the fact that we see this first chapter 11 filing uh, for this company and they list names, they, they redact a whole lot, but they still leave in the name and the mm-hmm. wallet address. And now suddenly, right. you know how much that person, how much money they have. You can see where they Completely. send it, right? And that, it's just old school versus new school. When this happens, yeah. uh, thing, problems happen. So the way this happens is that these companies are required, these crypto exchanges or, or uh, technology uh, services are required to have a database of PII, right? Database mm-hmm. of all right. their users, cr- a driver's license, numbers, passport numbers, et cetera. KYC, know your customer, you know, get that in exactly. there for compliance. Exactly. And and the KYC means like, like if you look at a Coinbase, right? Coinbase, mm-hmm. a great company. They, uh, of course, they they have a centralized database of their users. Now, right. it just blows the mind that these companies that espouse the virtues of decentralized currency are not taking on <laughs> decentralized identity, right? I've, to me, yeah. that's what it's about. I, I've I've been down this road, you know, speaking with other guests and just joking about Satoshi, whoever they may be, rolling in their grave. As these companies move towards their IPO or working with more institutional clients from the Wall Street, you know, uh, firms, they did, you know, in some ways have to play by those old school rules and lost, as you point out, some of what initially attracted people or initially made it powerful in a new in a new way. You know, maybe not exactly. new, but the pendulum was swinging back, you know, to a different style. So I totally feel you on that. So let's say I'm a developer um, and I'm interested, yeah, in building in true Web three fashion. If I were to check out identity, what would you, you know, what are the access points? Am I talking about an SDK, an API? Like, how are you helping developers or organizations that want to utilize this stuff make the best of your platform? We have a variety of protocols, but the the one we're focused on right now is what we call the gateway protocol. And this Mm -hmm. is essentially a two-sided protocol. A developer of of a DAP or a service, a web service, who wants to identify their customers, there it's very simple to implement the API from that perspective and say, I want to validate my customers as they onboard. And then it connects to the back end to one of our, what we call validator partners or gatekeepers. And these mm-hmm. are ones that are actually doing the, the identity validation, right? So on the back end, it could be a company like Onfido or Secure that do KYC for a living. Now, what happens is that then there's an exchange of information through this protocol. People send in a picture of their driver's license. It gets vetted by the the back-end company. They ultimately vet. They do an AML verification. Is the ID, does it match up with local data data records or all the holograms on the ID? You know, they do that standard fraud check. And if everything's kosher, they they stamp it, put a stamp of approval on the blockchain through our service. And then the credentials get sent back to the user for their storage most likely on their phone. And uh, once you have it on your phone, you're in complete control. It's 
what we call self-sovereign identity. When somebody wants to query your wallet, right? So they'll query the wallet saying, okay, I, I want to know if, if, uh, who this guy is. Oh, it's really Ben Popper. Here's his, right. he, they, we want to get his, uh, his age, right? Is he over 21? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the level of disclosure you give, right? The right now, if you want to, and I know people all use this, this same analogy, but when you go to a bar, you have to show them everything about yourself by your driver's license, right? Right, right. They get your whole birth date, your full name, all this information. They My home need. address. They just yeah, need exactly. To know. Exactly. They just need to know, is he of age? That's all. They don't need to know your exact age. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and that's what we try to do. So we want the person to be able to be able to uh, disclose what they think is appropriate for this. If you're getting a bank loan, look, you're going to need to give a lot of information. If you're trying right. to buy a beer, there's hardly any information. They don't even need to know your name. Right. They just need no, to know like you're the person. And, and this is- Yeah, you want to atomize these different you know, data types so that exactly. you, know, you only need to give what's necessary. And right, obviously, if you had to go through some big financial transaction with a traditional institution, maybe you have to give up a lot. But if you're maybe interacting with a DAP and they just want to make sure you're 21 for their terms of service, then maybe you can just verify that. That's very cool. Exactly. So we have this protocol. You think of it as a marketplace, and ultimately, you know, we have Secure. We have we have Onfido on the back end. Onfido goes through Civic. Civic is the largest user of our protocol at this point. Right. And we're adding more of those those service providers on the back end, so we can support the world. Secure is U.S. Onfido supports a variety of countries. We want to mm-hmm. you know move to Europe, et cetera. Have all these different uh, providers on board, but it's right. really simple for the DAP providers to be able to integrate us and and start identifying their customers, but that's all this whole regulated stuff, this KYC AML. I think the the cooler piece mm-hmm. is uh, there's a lot of use cases where you don't need the KYC, the person. You don't need to know their driver's license, all of this. You just want to know, you know, uh, do they really have a degree from Brown? You know, do they have a degree in 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 uh, uh, in virology? Right. If you're going to listen to someone uh, give you advice online, I kind of want to know what some of their credentials are. Should I be drinking right. bleach to cure me of COVID or not? You would be surprised how easy it is to trust people on Twitter. Yeah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> it's so true. So we're doing these, some of the other validators that we're, we're onboarding or companies to be able to help you with reputational aspects of your identity. Things like jobs that you've had, uh, degrees that you may have, uh, et cetera, things along those lines. And, and look, hacker rank and things like that, where you fall in the scale of a JavaScript programmer with the rest compared to the rest of the world. Because... I really believe in what the Web3 is doing with regards to pseudonyms. I think pseudonymity that the, of companies like the Board Ape Yacht Clubs, the Yuga Labs folks that have gone fully pseudonymous, uh, to me is awesome, right? Imagine a world where you don't, it, where nobody knows what color, what religion, what gender you are when you're applying for a job. They see an avatar right. and they see a work product. And that's all you really need to know about. It's the work product. Right. Yeah. That's the world we're trying to create. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's one of the beauties of open source. You know, you don't need to give your name to go in and be a great contributor and be recognized right. for, you know, how many times you've helped out building a certain thing. And it's the same on Stack Overflow. You can contribute and, you know, help out millions of folks. And I think probably, you know, with a little bit of tweaking here and there, maybe with the help of something like identity.com, show somebody that you're the top 10 contributor, you know, to questions about Python or about um, you know, JavaScript without needing to reveal your full identity, you know, that you could connect that back to an account. So being able to be an expert or a contributor 
but not necessarily have to give that up, I think is very interesting. So yeah, I mean, I guess last question I would ask you, having grown up in Cupertino, father worked at IBM, spent time at Apple, and now in the brave new world of Web3, where do you think we are, you know, in the in the arc of history, you know, is it is it is it going to take adoption of some of these principles and ideas from the the Apples and Googles and Microsofts of the world to push us further, or do you think you know this Web three world is going to continue to grow on its own and in some ways then begin to take over, you know, to replace some of the older school tech companies the way you know a social media company or a search company replaced an older line you know tech company in the aughts. Right. That's <laughs> it's a big question. question. You don't have to have a great prediction. I don't know. I'm just curious because you, you have so much history in the space. Yeah. Yeah. I struggle with it, to be honest. I really see this is a life and death battle between Web 2 and Web 3 <laughs> right now. I, you know, I, I heard, I heard somewhere recently that somebody said, you know, all the brands we know are going to be gone in 30 years, right? You Mm -hmm. won't be eating at a McDonald's. It'll be something else, right? Some, uh, something else will take over. Now, I'm not sure if that's true. I I look at it from the web perspective and I I believe that wholeheartedly to be true. These brands, these big web two brands that we've known for the last 20, 30 plus years, uh, I think are going to get replaced by ones that, uh, because the whole business model is changing, right? This whole business model of of me, you know, I, I, I like to say not your keys, not your identity, right? It's a similar thing with the crypto world of, of the wallet, not, not your keys, not your crypto, because who owns my identity? Right. Facebook would probably argue that they own me, right? <laughs> and, and companies like that. How many PII honeypots have, uh, has my data been in and been hacked? I mean, a lot. And, uh, and I don't like that, right? I want to be able to flip it, flip the script and let us start earning if you want to, if you want to monetize and, and sell advertising to me, et cetera, you should be paying me, right? These are, these are all the kinds of how the script is completely flipped in Web three, and I think this is the future. This is a huge critical turning point for the web, and if we do it right, you know, right. these Web three, these Web two giants could jump in and uh, and join, but they're just not they're not engineered to to support this model. That's why I think it's all going to be new guys. Yeah. No, I don't I don't like to go see have I been owned. It's not it's not a fun um thing. It's a and, terrible uh, place. It's, it's a terrible place to visit and realize how many times it's happened to you. And I guess, you know, just to sort of reflect a bit on how you guys started this in gaming, the thing that always strikes me is the area where the metaverse, you know, it's furthest along is gaming, the way people would pay for skins or virtual real estate yeah. and how much they care about their character in Fortnite or Roblox. If those companies started to adopt some of the Web3 ideas and began to allow you to take your own keys, your own credits, your own avatar between those worlds, that could be really powerful because people do invest so much time and money in those. Um, but you know, right now, they each have their own walled garden, and that is sort of to their benefit. So it'd be interesting right. to see them maybe adopt some of those ideas. Yeah, they make such a good amount of money from these kind of things, right? That for them to have to completely change their business model on the fly, that's that's why I see companies like Star Atlas as as like a really cool upcoming game that uh, that's going to be play to earn, right? You'll be able to make money there. You'll be able to sell your wares, etc. I I think that that is going to be. I mean, I. Look, I, I know that with Axie Infinity, it, it was amazing in the beginning, and then bots took over, and now people aren't making as much money there. But fix the bot problem. And look, I got a great product to do that. Identity.com will help. But these are the kind of things that, that for me, I think there are ways to solve it rather than scrapping the whole industry saying play to earn doesn't work, right? Much better solutions.
All right, everybody. I want to thank Philip for coming on. And it is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the member uh, of the Stack Overflow community who came and helped us. They won a lifeboat badge for rescuing a question with a score of negative three or less. Now that question has a score of three or more and their answer has a score of 20 or more. Speaking of anonymity, thanks to Marching Band. How do I run a C or C++ code effectively in Node.js? All right. If you want to know about efficient C, C++ in Node.js, Marching Band has the answer for you. This question was asked four years ago and has helped almost 12,000 people. So we appreciate you coming on the community, spreading some knowledge around. I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always email us, podcast at Stack Overflow with questions or suggestions. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Philip Shoemaker, executive director of identity.com. You can get me at at PBS Identity on Twitter, or just come to www.identity.com. Very cool. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. 